Hello and welcome to the brand new second series of the Steps to Investing podcast and welcome back to our regular listeners after our late summer break. I'm Simon Longfellow and I'm Marcus De Silva and on the programme this week as ever our aim is to bring you news, hints and ideas all designed for the novice investor. This week we'll cover the internet taking over our shopping habits, more worries in the markets about the impending US election, and two brand new ways to access steps to investing. And in the big investment, we talk about something called geopolitical risk. It basically means any event that changes the nature of the economic, military or political relationships between nations worldwide. And this can impact on economies, markets and ultimately the companies we invest in. We'll look at the rationale for multi-asset investing in this context as a good product for dealing with geopolitical risks. Diversification across assets because of changing market focus and then human decision-making considering the complexities and risks in those markets. That's coming up later, but first a quick mention of two things we've been working on during our break from podcasting. The first is a guide on where to invest over the next year. We'll look at the current environment and where the investment opportunities might be before a second wave of the pandemic or after the pandemic and how capitalism might change in the future. All of this is free and there's a link included in the bio for this pod. We've also been developing a quick email course that runs over seven days and brings you all the best from Steps to Investing to get you started and so you can learn the basics. To get access, again, just go to the link in the bio and sign up. Okay, on with the show. Uh, first, let's get a roundup of the latest news in markets and companies. Marcus, you've been looking at the week in markets. What's been happening? Thank you, Simon, and a very warm welcome to you all to season two of the Steps minicast and the soap opera drama that is the stock market. This week, we're going to take a look at what hopes US investors are clinging onto amid the election uncertainties there and why Europe has its manufacturing sector to thank for some more positive news. In the US, the week is up, but the month is down. Investors there are broadly fretting about the election chaos, and indeed whether Donald Trump will leave the White House if he loses, not to mention the prospect of a second wave of coronavirus. Historically, September has proved to be a pretty rubbish month for markets, with some putting it down to the rather relaxed fund managers returning from their holidays and selling portfolio positions they've mulled over and no longer want. However, more specifically in the US, investors this week are taking comfort in the fact that Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, is sitting down with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin to hammer out the details of a second round of coronavirus fiscal support package, with latest reports saying it will be somewhere between the rather astounding $1.5 and $2 trillion mark. This includes some $20 billion for the ailing airlines, which has caused the sector to bounce a little on the news. The S&P 500 is up 135 points to 3,361. European markets 
joined the US in being down for the month. A Reuters poll showed investors are similarly worrying about a second wave of COVID and, in particular, what it will do for unemployment figures. But for the week, European investors have been cheered by more positive data readings from the manufacturing sector, specifically from Engine Room Germany. No surprises there. Whilst this is good news, investors are now poised for Monday when we will hear how the services sector has been doing, which is more important because it accounts for two-thirds of the economic output in Europe. The Eurozone stock 600 is broadly flat this week at 3,185 points. The French CAC 40 is up 92 points to 4,845 points this week. And the German DAX is up 179 points to 12,793. Looking to the UK specifically, it has been more of a range-bound month. And by this we mean the market's sort of been bouncing along between the 5,800 point level and the 6,100 point level. There, the bears, the pessimists, are worrying about rising COVID infections, now up at around 7,000 new infections per day. And the bulls, the optimists, are looking to fresh stimulus hopes to deal with the economic impact potentially led by further lockdowns. This week, sentiment was somewhat buoyed by data that showed factory output lifted for a fourth consecutive month in September. The FTSE 100 is 91 points up at 5,917. Okay, moving on to companies. More doom and gloom on the high street this week, I'm afraid, as discount fashion retailer, fast fashion retailer H&M announces it is to close 250 of its stores across the globe. That represents about 5% of its footprint worldwide. The changes will be implemented next year as shoppers continue to move online, although it's not yet clear what the impact will be in the UK. In related news, the CEO of Next, the high street clothes and furniture retailer, has warned that hundreds of thousands of jobs may not survive as they're unviable in the wake of the pandemic. Speaking to the BBC, Lord Wolfson said there was a clear threat to thousands of jobs because of the shift to online shopping. And sportswear firm Nike has this week said it thinks the shift to online business will be permanent and, and outlast the virus. In the period between June and August this year, online sales at Nike went up 82%. CEO John Donohoe said that the consumer today was digitally grounded and would not revert back once the pandemic was over. And finally, in the news section, Rolls-Royce has announced it's to raise up to £2 billion from its shareholders through a rights issue. That's an offer to buy more shares, usually at a discount to the current price. The money is to bolster the company, which has seen a sharp deterioration as a result of the downturn in the airline industry. Thank you, Simon. And on to the big investment. Mudslinging between US presidential hopefuls might have been somewhat entertaining on Tuesday night, but also left some of you pondering what impact the election chaos is having and will have on investing in markets, especially as we get closer to polling day. Investors refer to these sorts of events as geopolitical risks, and today 
we're going to have a look at what we mean by this. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. What is geopolitical risk? It's quite a wide-ranging concept. It's not just politics. It basically means any event that changes the nature of the economic, military or political relationship that exists between nations. It's intercontinental in that way. So wars create geopolitical risks. Climate change creates them. Trade tensions creates them. And big elections within superpowers will also create geopolitical risks. And how do markets react? Well, as you can imagine, markets don't really like geopolitical risks because it creates lots of uncertainties for underlying businesses within economies, which prevents decision-making and investment. Schroders looked into the historical market impact of five different big geopolitical events, like the Gulf War in 9-11, and found that investors tended to run towards safer assets until the uncertainty goes away. This means pivoting away from riskier stuff, such as company shares, towards safer havens, such as government bonds or other stores of value, such as gold. Not to mention also the geographies and markets where the risks are having an impact. Studies then showed that once the geopolitical risks subside, riskier assets in those markets tend to perform better again. Okay, uh, and how do investors think about elections and, and specifically the upcoming US election? With elections, investors will be considering the policies that are going to follow the winning candidate, depending on whether they're on the right or the left. So policies such as tax or regulation or government spending plans, their fiscal plans. And therefore, then, the impact that these policies might have on the economy and also whether they will favour certain sectors more than others. In the US, investors are also going to be considering not only who is president, but how much power their party has in Congress as well, as this is the ability to get stuff done, to get legislation signed into law. If it's divided, then not much gets done, a little bit like Obama's second term. This time around, though, investors also think that either outcome is probably going to be positive for markets as both candidates are likely to continue spending big to carry the economy through its current COVID-inspired funk, not to forget the huge monetary support from the Federal Reserve. There is a scenario that Trump contests the outcome, which could stretch out the market uncertainty for a few weeks beyond the election, probably. But ultimately, investors think that the predicament will come to an end with a Supreme Court ruling rather than some sort of doomsday, rise of the alt-right militia type scenario. Sector winners are harder to call. You could say that a Biden win and a Democrat clean sweep in Congress could lead to broader things like higher corporate taxes, but also higher taxes in certain sectors such as energy and a bit more of a switch in investment towards greener sectors such as renewable tech and things like that. But it's worth noting that stimulus is likely to have a much bigger hand in the markets here. Okay, and so how can listeners to the programme think about investing given these geopolitical risks? Well, the Schroeder's study found that the, as you would expect, the safer portfolio did better in the shorter run, and then when the uncertainties had abated, they performed less well, and that it was vice versa for the riskier portfolios with more shares. They didn't do so well in the short run and then performed better later on. But it's not just as simple, I don't think, as switching between the two, because we've got a lot of risks in the market at the moment. They're very heightened. Obviously, the pandemic is the big one, but other stuff as well, like the US-China trade wars. And the US has a lot of influence globally in terms of its markets. It's the biggest stock market in the world with around 55% of global share. It's the biggest superpower. 
So it might be quite hard for investors to navigate all of that and find the best places of value as investors sort of switch their short-term focus. Now, there are a number of ways of doing this, but we thought that diversification was pretty smart because the impact of this is quite broad across risk assets. And also having an investment professional dynamically navigating around the different classes and geographies to try and find the markets with the best value as, as the switch uh, in investor focus occurs. Um, that one good idea might be the multi-asset portfolios that we've talked about a little bit before. But Simon is going to give us a little bit of a reminder about what multi-asset is. Yes, we've covered multi-asset in a previous pod, uh, although not really in the context of the investment strategy you've been outlining. So just as a reminder, multi-asset funds blend investments across a lot of different asset classes through both active and passive funds. They will aim for a particular level of risk, which will determine how much of the portfolio will be allocated to certain assets. So a riskier, more adventurous portfolio, for example, might have more shares in listed companies. A professional investor, a fund manager, then oversees the investment process and will constantly be, be looking at what's going, going on across all of the markets to find that best mix of investments for the portfolio, but also to navigate those risks, uh, such as the ones presented by the US election we've just been talking about. Okay, so who have you got as an example? Well, I want to start with a brand new launch, uh, which actually only came to the market on the 8th of September this year. And of course, I'll start by saying that makes it unproven to some extent. But it's also worth mentioning uh, because it's Europe's first multi-asset ESG portfolio. ESG, that stands for Environmental Social and governance. And these are the factors uh, which managers take into account when picking assets to go in this multi-asset portfolio. The fund I'm talking about is the BlackRock ESG multi-asset fund, and it comes in three different flavours, conservative, moderate and growth. And what do they do? Well, these three flavours are essentially flavours of the same thing, as you might expect. Um, They take more risk as you go up that scale from conservative to growth. And basically, you get a portfolio of ETFs, exchange-traded funds, that meet these ESG criteria, the criteria pertaining to environmental, social and governance factors. Now, in the case of the growth version of the fund, that translates at the moment to 13 ETFs in the portfolio. Now, that doesn't sound very diversified, grant you, but those 13 ETFs have investments in about 2,200 underlying companies. So the biggest holdings at the moment, uh, after taking out cash, which is about 2.5% of the portfolio, are Microsoft, followed by Apple, Tesla, and Procter & Gamble. And when you look at the portfolio overall, this one is about 61% 
invested in the US. It's mainly in information technology companies and is about 75% in shares and about two and a, uh, sorry, 25% in bonds. What about performance and costs? So yes, it's a fund of funds, and that usually means expensive. But because this is a hybrid of sorts, it's using a real-life uh, fund manager, or fund managers actually in this case, to choose a portfolio of cheap tracker funds, the costs overall, the ongoing charges uh, figure, is 0.25% for the year. So performance, well, it's way too early to say, only launched in September. You really want to be looking and waiting for those three-year numbers, really as a minimum, to see how it works. Okay, let's move on. What else have you found? Well, there's a lot of these multi-asset funds uh, around. Most fund management groups have their own versions. And of course, uh, they don't have to uh, aim for adventurous growth. Uh, for example, the Fidelity Multi-Asset Allocator Defensive Fund, that's a mouthful, uh, aims to provide long-term capital growth, but has a focus on capital preservation, so hanging on to your money. And that's through global exposure to lower-risk assets. So, in practice, that means... 80% of the portfolio in lower risk assets, so things like government bonds, corporate bonds, cash, and 20% in higher risk assets, so things like shares in global companies, uh, shares in emerging markets, shares in smaller companies, and shares in, in real estate. Again, this has an low ongoing charge, 0.25% a year, the same as the other one. Um, and this one has been running since 2013. So you can get the data. This tells us that as of the 1st of October, if you'd invested £1,000 for the last five years, that £1,000 would now have grown to £1,410. It's largely invested in the US, again, about 60% or so, and its biggest holding at some 28% of the portfolio. So a lot of the portfolio is in a global government bond index run by the bank, HSBC. Okay, and what about something from a lesser known firm? Yes, okay, so that's the final pick, and it's from a company called Rathbones, who are probably better known for financial advice uh, and managing people's money by investing in individual companies. That's known as discretionary management. But they do also have a number of funds. Many of them are fund of fund products. The one we're looking at today is managed by a chap called David Coombs. He's the head of multi-asset, co-managed by Will McIntosh White. And it's the Rathbone Multi-Asset Strategic Growth Fund. And it aims to deliver a total return, so that's return from income, from dividends, and from the growth in your money, the capital. Uh, so a total return higher than the consumer price index, CPI. Now, we had uh, our program a couple of weeks ago about inflation, and uh, regular listeners will remember us talking about CPI as a measure of uh, inflation. Well, this aims to beat CPI by more than 3%. After fees, over any rolling five-year period. Um, and so if you look at the five-year period to the end of September, which is the last data I could get, the benchmark for CPI, the Consumer Prices Index, plus three, plus 3%, 3 
So that returned 25%, but the fund returned 43%. So in other words, it beat its target comfortably. Now, uh, the one, the, the thing about this one is it's about 60% shares at the moment, uh, bonds, cash, alternatives, and private equity make up the balance. Okay, thanks, Simon. Uh, just as a little reminder, we obviously don't know your personal circumstances, so please don't see anything as a specific recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any investments. Okay, yes, and do remember that all the numbers that we supply are those currently published by the fund managers. Uh, and will change in the future. Anyway, that concludes today's show, and we thank you very much for listening. You can check out all the previous eps from Series 1 on the Steps to Investing website, stepstoinvesting.com. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care out there, and happy investing. Goodbye. Goodbye.